man, we are excited you're here. We launched a brand new campus last week in Murfreesboro. We sent 200 people from this campus down to Murfreesboro to launch a campus down there. Uh, opened last week with 482 people showed up. So that's amazing. We're very excited about the launch of the new Murfreesboro campus. And so some of you are here, you're sort of kicking our tires. You're checking us out, seeing who we are and what we're about. And I, I can sum that up uh, in one phrase. We are a sending church. We're a sending church. Now, I know that some people, it, it's common for people to think about salvation as terminating on themselves. People think, well, you know, I get an escape hell. I get my, uh, my free ticket to heaven. And that is a reality. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven based on the authority of God's word. I know that because I'm redeemed. And that's an incredible reality. But God didn't just save you uh, to punch your reservation in the non-smoking section, uh, although that's great. He saved you to send you. He saved you to send you. In Romans chapter 10, we'll get there, not this fall, but we'll get there in the spring. In Romans 10, Paul said, uh, how will people believe in Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus? How will people hear about Jesus if no one tells them about Jesus? And how will people uh, uh, tell people about Jesus if they're not sent? Okay, so we're a sending church. That's why we're a sending church. And that's why we're not just interested in more members. If you're guests, if you're coming, if you're interested in membership, now that's not dumbing down members. We think membership in a local church is very, very important. It's biblical. It's a necessity for a believer. But we're not interested in just members as far as people signing up and I'm here. We're interested in gaining more missionaries. People that we send. We send people all over the world. We send people to live in Bangkok, in Brussels, in India. We send people all up and down the hallway. You've got different mission experiences. You've got Mexico. You've got Brazil and all, all, many different places. We sent a couple hundred people to our Stewart's Creek campus. We sent a couple hundred people to our Murfreesboro campus. But being sent is not just about changing your location. Being sent is about living every domain of your life so that people can hear and believe. It's about going to work tomorrow, being sent to work so that people in your job can hear and believe. It's about going to school tomorrow. It's about going into your neighborhood, into your home. It's about going to the ball field this week, living so that people can hear and believe. That's what Paul's talking about all through Romans. I don't know if you know this or not, but Romans is a missionary support letter, really. Paul's in Corinth. He's writing to Rome because he wants to go to Spain. The Spaniards have never heard the gospel. They're an unengaged, unreached people is what we would call them today because they've never heard the gospel. Paul wants to go preach the gospel there where no one else has ever preached the gospel. But he needs help getting there. So he writes Romans and he writes to the Roman church to basically say, I need you to help me get there. But he doesn't just say, I need to go preach the gospel, so I need your help. Give me some money. And say, he, he, he goes into this extensive presentation of what the gospel is all about of why people need the gospel, of what salvation is all about, because he wants us to be motivated by more than, well, people are lost and need Jesus. He wants us to be motivated by biblical knowledge of the gospel. And that's what Romans is all about. And we uh, spent the first, uh, or the spring, going through the first four chapters. We're going to spend the fall going through the next four chapters, five through eight. We're calling this installment uh, a glorious exchange. The reason we're calling it that is because Paul's going to talk about how we exchange through Jesus our condemnation for his justification. Our chaos, our being an enemy of God with being at peace with God. Our, we, we exchange our death for his life. It is a glorious exchange. 
So last week we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We looked at some benefits of justification. If you're a believer, there's incredible benefits. Not just heaven, that's one. But there's incredible benefits of following Jesus. And today we're going to look at two more. And so let me read to you verses 6 to 11. Now there's no way I can read this like Tehran uh, uh, quotes it. I mean, man, it, it was awesome, right? I mean, Tehran does an incredible job. But let me, uh, let me read it because I want to give you the context and point out some words that's going to help you in this discussion, all right, as we break it down. So I'm going to read the whole passage, verses 6 to 11. Here's what Paul says. For while we were still weak, that's one of the words I want you to hang on to. To, we're going we're gonna to talk about what that word means. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly. That's another word that I, I want you to circle, highlight, whatever you do. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, there's, there's a word, sinners, hang on to that word, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Our bottom line today, by the way, is loved in his death and secured by his life. Loved by his death, secured by his life. I like to call it loved and locked. All right, loved and locked. That's easy to remember, but, but, but you're going to see that we are loved by his death. When it talks about his blood, we're justified by his blood. Blood represents life, and so it's talking about his death. Okay, so blood is important. Justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. That's important. Since therefore, uh, or, or for we, uh, go into verse 10. Uh, for if while we were enemies, there's another word, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We're loved by his death. We're secured by his life. We're loved by his death. We're secured by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, that is verses 6 to 11. I wanted you to see the context because I wanted you to get these four words, and uh, we're going to jump through. In verses 1 through 5, Paul, as I said, gives some benefits of justification. If you're redeemed, if you're saved, if you're justified, if you know Jesus, Man, you have now had this glorious exchange, the benefits of the glorious exchange. One of the benefits you exchanged was, Paul said out of the gate in verse 1, you exchanged being an enemy of God for being at peace with God. Peace is not this feeling of inner tranquility, although that's, you know, we all want that. But the peace Paul's talking about is peace with God. We're at enemies with a nation and peace is struck. That's awesome. Well, we were at enemies of God. God's not our enemy. We're enemies of God and we're now at peace with God. That was a glorious exchange. We exchanged alienation because of our sin. We were separated from God. But through Jesus, we, we exchanged alienation for unlimited access with God. Every moment of every day, you can go before the King of Kings. You have a standing appointment that's open for you. Uh, you, you not just now, but for all of eternity. That's why we hope in the glory, right, of, of God. So you exchanged alienation for unlimited access. You exchanged defeat and trials. Everybody experiences trials. Everybody experiences tribulation. Everybody experiences suffering. You exchange de defeat in, in trials with joy in trials. Some beautiful, incredible benefits. But here he talks about two more. One that we talk about in verses 6 through 8 is that we exchange being objects of God's wrath to being objects of his amazing love. 
He talks about the incredible love of God. And we need to talk about that for a moment because, you see, we sort of presume on God's love, to be honest. I mean, we, we think about it in childish terms. I mean, you know, Jesus loves the little children. I love the children of the world. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We start learning about God's love and, as a child, and, and, and we sort of keep it in that realm about love. And, but God's love is so much more amazing and, and so much deeper than that. And, and as we talk through this today, I, I want you to understand this is not a, a how-to message. It's going to give you some stuff to chew on, all right? I'm going to throw out some stuff for you to chew on, not expecting you to grasp everything. That's why we want you to go to small groups, because when you go through Romans, I mean, it's not just, you know, something you can read, understand, walk away, and drink a cup of tea and go on about life. You got you to gotta think about it for a while, okay? So we're going we're gonna to break down the love of God, because uh, it's very important, and many people are confused about God's love. We're either too shallow about God's love or too childish about God's love or we just don't think about it in proper terms. Many of you think, for instance, that God can't love you. There's no way God can love you because of what you've done. I mean, no way because of the things you think, because of the things that you've said. God can't love me. Look at all I've done. Now, there's another extreme where some of you think, well, God loves me. Look, I'm, I'm lovable, right? I mean, why wouldn't God not love me? I'm lovable. And what you need to understand is you can't grasp how amazing God's love is until you understand how truly unlovable you really are. And that's why Paul gives us these four words out of the gate here in verses 6 through uh, really 11. The first word he uses is weak. He says that we're weak while we were weak. Now, weak is a word that means helpless or powerless. And what he means is you are alienated from God by your sin. We're rebels. We've rebe rebelled against God. Adam and Eve sinned, and by their sin, we inherited their sin gene. We were born with a nature that rebels against God. And as a result of that, uh, there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We are too weak. We are too powerless. We are too helpless to make ourselves right with God. Nothing we can do. That's why Jesus told a man by the name of Nicodemus in John 3. John 3, we get this most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Most famous verse in the Bible. In the, that's in the context of a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus who is a Pharisee. And he said, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must be born again. Right? Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. You can't get any more religious than that. But all of that religion could not make him right with God. All of that religion couldn't do the trick. It couldn't make him right with God. That's why Jesus said you have to have a spiritual rebirth. And just like you had nothing, literally to, nothing to do with your physical birth, you can have nothing to do with your spiritual rebirth because you are too weak. You are too powerless. You are too helpless. That's what Jesus uh, says. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, you've heard it said last week I, I corrected a statement that we hear a lot of times. You know, when someone dies, it's common for people to say, well, he got his wings, or well, God needed an angel, and uh, you know, as if God needs anything, but all, all those things. Well, that's, we talked about that being bad theology. People are not angels. People, angels are created beings and, and all. Well, another statement that people make that sounds good Maybe you've said it, but it's horrible theology, and don't say it anymore, is that God helps those who help themselves. 
Have you heard that? God helps those who help themselves. That sounds good, but it's just completely opposite of the Bible. It's not only not in the Bible, it is completely opposite of the Bible. God doesn't help those who can help themselves because nobody can. God helps those who admit that I'm powerless to help myself. I can't do anything to help myself. That's the people that God helps. We were weak, we were powerless, and, and, and we can't do anything. And let me give you an example. In chapter 1, we talked about in the spring, you can go listen to the previous messages, we talked about homosexuality and how homosexuality is a grievous sin against God. We talked about that. And the Bible's clear, yet the homosexual agenda propagates the lie that homosexuality is a fixed reality in other words you're born that way there's nothing you can do to change it right and so it's cruel to try to tell homosexuals that they uh, don't need to be homosexuals because that that they can't change and listen that's a half lie which is worse than a whole uh, I mean a half truth which is worse than a whole lie the half truth is this homosexuals can't change Neither can murderers, neither can liars, neither can thieves. None of us can change, right? We're, he we're helpless, we're too powerless, we're too weak to change. Addicts cannot change, we're too weak in our own power, right? We, we, we just can't do that. That's the half-truth, but the lie is that we can't be changed. You see, that's what the gospel is all about. That's what Jesus does. He changes us at the core of our being, at who we are. Now, what I want you to understand is, let me tell you what a, lot of, what a lot of church is about in many, many, many instances, and what a lot of religion is about. It's about this thing called behavior modification. And behavior modification, you can change some things about your outside. I mean, you can, you, you know, man, if you cuss like a drunk sailor, I mean, you can, you know, condition yourself not to cuss or to cuss less, right? You lie, man, you're, you can be a pathological liar. You can condition yourself to lie less, right? I mean, man, you, you can... Behavior mod can change the outside, but you cannot change the inside. You are too weak and you are too powerless to change the inside. But Jesus can change you at the core of your being. That's what Paul says. He says, look, let me tell you how unlovable you are. You're, you're too weak. You are a rebel against God and you're too weak to do anything about it. And then he says, you're ungodly. We were ungodly, Right? Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as ungodly. If you're a, not a believer today, maybe you come and you're a guest. Maybe you've never been to church, and I'm like, wow, I thought church was supposed to make you feel good. You're telling me I'm an ungodly, rebel, punk, jerk, sinner. Well, come back next week. We get more with that, right? So, uh, but, you know, uh, most of us, if, you, if you're not a believer, you don't think of yourself as ungodly. If you are a believer, I bet that if you go back to your BC days before Christ, you wouldn't think of yourself as ungodly. Because ungodly, we think of somebody that's evil, right? I mean, we think of the love child of Marilyn Manson and Lady Gaga. That's ungodly, right? I mean, that's what ungodly is, all that junk. and we think. But that's not biblically what ungodly is. Did you know that? Let me tell you what ungodly is biblically. Ungodly simply means that you reject God and do your own thing. You live as if God does not exist. You, you establish and create your own morality and live to please yourself, not God. That's what morality is. I mean, I mean that's what uh, ungodly is. And so therefore, the legalistic church lady who is like Nicodemus, who does a lot of good stuff, but in reality, she has not been reborn, but she's a legalistic, very moral church lady. She can be just as ungodly as the guy who wakes up with nothing on but a pair of leather chaps and his fingernails painted pink and has no clue how he got there. Right? 
You think one is ungodly and one's moral and good. They're both ungodly if they don't surrender to Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, uh, that's ungodly. So he says, we are ungodly. He says, we are weak. And then the next, he says, we're sinners. We're sinners. I mean, man, we rebel against God. We miss the mark. Many of you would say, man, I'm not that bad. I mean, look at that person. They are much worse than me. I mean, and so therefore, I'm not a bad sinner. God has to love me because look at this person. But the problem is, God doesn't evaluate us based on anyone else. The only standard is Jesus Christ. And it's his perfection, right? He says, you're a sinner. You are a weak, ungodly sinner. And then he says, you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. Now, again, like most of us don't like to think of ourselves as ungodly, uh, we... Uh, don't like to think of ourselves as enemies of God. Even if you're a believer, you would say, man, I wasn't an enemy of God. I I might have been indifferent to God, but I wasn't his enemy. But here's what God says. Apart from Jesus, we are his enemy. It doesn't say he's our enemy, but it says we are his enemy. We are hostile toward God. So Paul uses these four words, and that's why I wanted to read it and point these four words out. You're weak. You're ungodly. You are a sinner. You are an enemy, hostile enemy of God. Until you understand how unlovable you are, you cannot understand the amazing depth of the love of God. I mean, until you grasp how unlovable you are. Uh, And and, uh, in verse 6, he says, He loved us when we were still ungodly sinners. Right? He loved us in verse 6. While we were weak, While we were rebels, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were ungodly, he loved us. Here's what that tells us. He didn't love you because you're lovable. He he didn't love you because you're lovable. He loved you because he is love. He didn't love you because of what you do. He loved you because of what Jesus did. He didn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. That's the absolute unfathomable richness of God's love. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he did. But here's, here's what I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be confused because there's this stream in churches and theology because people gravitate to the lowest common denominator many times, right? And people uh, are, are seeking for something to believe in. And then when they find something they like, That's generally what they gravitate to and hold on to and say, oh, wow, I love that. That's why there's so much confusion. And so there's this this bad theology. It's been for years, okay, but it's sort of making a resurgence in our very relativistic world that is uh, anti-God in so many ways that everybody, all dogs go to heaven, right? I mean, everybody goes. I mean, we love that, right? And so people can get it lots of times from uh, some passages like I just read that says, okay, God died for he loves ungodly rebel sinners who are his enemies he loves those people he died for enemies ungodly people so if if christ died for the ungodly then that that means all people are ungodly and if he died for the ungodly all people are ungodly and he loves the ungodly then that means all people going to heaven right wrong That's called universalism, and it's clearly not what the Bible teaches. Yes, it's true that all the people Christ died for are ungodly sinners. Me, many of you. But Christ didn't die for all the ungodly sinners, or that would mean everybody would go to heaven. 
because he died, his death accomplished exactly what it was intended to accomplish. Now, Jesus' death is sufficient to save everybody in the world. But the Bible says it only saves those who surrender to him. It only saves those who believe in him. So don't think because Jesus died for ungodly, Jesus loves ungodly sinners, and everybody's an ungodly sinner, that everybody's going to heaven. No, no, not at all. That's universalism, and it is a toxic uh, uh, toxic belief. It is wrong biblically. He, his death is sufficient to save everybody, but it is only effective and applies to those who surrender to him. Okay? Now, you need to understand, uh, let, me, let me help you to understand God's love in, theologically in three different ways. Theologians, much smarter than me, talk about God's love in three different ways to help you understand how God loves everybody, but God unconditionally loves his children. And he doesn't uh, love everybody in a complete same way. Let, let me help you understand. Here's what theologians talk about the benevolent love of God. The benevolent love of God, benevolent means goodwill, right? Benevolent, bene means good, uh, the violin, the, the word means will, it's goodwill. And so the benevolent love of God is God's attitude toward everybody. He's not unkind. He, he, he's not hateful. He's not scary to people. He, that's not God. He has a benevolent love that applies to everybody in the world. Those who love him and those who don't love him, those who surrender to him and those who rebel against him. And I mean, God has this attitude, this benevolent love for everybody in the world. Then there's the, benef the beneficent love of God. The benevolent love, the beneficent love. The beneficent love deals with his, his actions. That's his good act. Benevolent is goodwill. That's attitude. Beneficent is his actions. It's good work. So God has good actions toward everybody in the world. For instance, you know, uh, believers, non-believers have a job. If you have a job, if a believer, a non-believer, somebody that rebels against God has a job, that's God's good act. God's in charge of the world. He created the world. He's sovereign over the world. And so therefore, the fact that anybody has a job, the fact that anyone has a child, the fact that anyone has a home to live in, uh, those are beneficent, good actions, God's love toward all mankind. He reigns on the just. He reigns on the unjust. God has good attitude and good actions for all people. The fact that a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins, who is a self-proclaimed atheist who, who argues, tries to argue against God, the fact that he breathes today, that is the beneficent love of God. He allows him to live. He has good attitude and good actions toward people right that's general for the entire world but now God also has a complacent love what theologians call this complacent love complacent we think of complacent or complacency as a bad thing you know people can get complacent in life never good to get complacent in life because that's sort of satisfied right I just sort of in cruise control I'm satisfied I'm kicking along but that's not what God's love means, that it's just, you know, in cruise control. God's complacent love means that he is completely, 100% satisfied in his son and those who belong to his son. He is completely and supremely loves his son and those who belong to his son. He completely and supremely, uh, absolutely adores his son and those who belong to his son. It is the complacent, unconditional love of God, and it only applies to those who are in his son. Right? So God loves everybody. But there is this complacent, unconditional love of God that rests upon all who follow him and surrender to him. And it is so amazing 
It is so amazing that if we could get it, it would change how we worship. It would change how we literally approach him. It would change everything. Because God, and this is great, because here, here's what's so great about God's love. It's so great because he doesn't love us because we're lovable. Let me tell you why that's so great. Because there are days when I'm not very lovable. And if God loved me because I was lovable, there are days when he wouldn't love me. To be quite honest with you, there are moments in every day that I'm not lovable probably. And I bet you're probably the same as me. And if God loved me because I was lovable, there are moments in every day that God would not love me. But here's what I know based on his word, not based on an emotional uh, hope. I know what I know, and it's no matter what I do. Because I'm redeemed, no matter how I screw up, no matter how I mess up, I know that that does not change God's unconditional, complacent love for me because it's based on who he is. It's not based on who I am. It's based on what? It's based on the fact that he is love, not that I'm lovable. And because of that, nothing I do, even when I'm not lovable, he loves me. And that makes me worship him. That makes me want to be here on Sunday to gather with the body to worship him. That makes me want to worship him when I get up tomorrow and how I live. That makes me motivated to say, God, I am absolutely blown away by the fact that you love me when I know I'm so unlovable. Now let me read verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. By the way, this is Paul's John 3.16. Remember, I quoted John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is Paul's John 3.16. While God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let me ask you something. Here's a great question for you to discuss in your small groups. Some of your small groups meet tonight. Some of your small groups will meet this week. Uh, or at lunch with your family. Who would you die for? Who, do you have a list? Who would you die for? If I made a list and you made a list, my list would be a whole lot like yours. Very small. Right? I mean, most of you aren't on my list, okay? I mean, I love you, but I ain't going to take a bullet for you, all right? But we've heard of, of people, you know, we've heard of husbands that die for their wives, right? I mean, man, that's, we've heard of, of dads that die for their kids. And man, I, I literally think I would. I mean, man, I hope I would. You don't know until, man, that, 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 that hammers against your head, right? I mean, but I hope I would. I hope I would die for my kids. I know I would die for four out of five of them. I'm still working on the other one. But, I mean, who would you die for? We've heard of soldiers in battle diving on live grenade. Live grenade comes flying in. Man, their buddies are around. They dive on the grenade, take the blow, kill themselves basically to save their buddies. Inspirational. That's a hero. And we can understand that. Many of us dudes would, would say, man, I, I hope I, I could do that. I, I mean, man, I, I mean, what would I do, man? I would, I would hope I would do that because that, that's noble. That's good. But let me ask you this. What if you heard this story and you never will? What, uh, or, or you have, just not in this case. What if you heard of one of our soldiers 
that have been captured by ISIS. And in their capture, they were taken as a POW, and they were tortured daily. They're dehydrated because of lack of water, I mean weak because of no food, jaws shattered, teeth knocked out, legs broken, tortured daily. And the military special forces mounting a rescue operation. And during this operation, during the, the, the battle of the Farukas, there's a live grenade comes flying in. And this beaten POW sees the grenade fly in. And he sees all these ISIS guys around him. And he dives on the grenade to save the ISIS guys. Would you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm saying burn, baby, burn. I ain't dying for ISIS. I, I'm not doing it. Who would do that? Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did on the cross. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He didn't die for those who love him and sing, Jesus loves the little children. Oh, I'll die. He died for those who hate him, those who rebel against him, those who live life their own way. That's, that's who Jesus died for. I mean, it, it, it's amazing because, you know, uh, as, as, we, as we look at this, God's conditional love is so amazing that when it says he died for the ungodly and he loves the ungodly, it doesn't mean that all ungodly go to heaven, those who surrendered him. What it means is he didn't make you wait and he didn't say, you get your act together and then I'll love you, then I'll die for you. You see, that's what a lot of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, that, that, that's one of the things that you use. Well, I need to... I need to get my act cleaned up before I go to church. You'll never do it. You're too weak. You're helpless. You're an enemy of God because your heart is set against God. It's hostile to God and the things of God. You'll never do it. The great thing is, Jesus said, while you were an enemy, while you were a rebel, while you were a sinner, while you were weak, I loved you and I died for you. You don't have to get your act cleaned up first. You never can. That's how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he absorbed the wrath of God. God loves you so much that he sent his son to absorb his wrath in your place. You know who you're saved from? Here's another misnomer. You're not saved from Satan. You're saved from God. Did you know that? God himself, we read it, already read it. You are saved from the wrath of God. It's God's wrath. Satan didn't win and, oh, God's saving you from the... No, no, no. It's the wrath of God poured out against his enemies. It's the wrath of God poured out against those uh, that rebel against him. And there's a real place called hell. And people will spend all of eternity there suffering the wrath of God. But God is just and he cannot just let sin go. And he's the justifier because he took the price. He paid the price and took the penalty, right? And so, so that's how amazing God's love is. That the price for sin is death and suffering the wrath of God. And he sent his son who willingly absorbed the wrath of God in your place. Don't you ever question the love of God for you. And I know you do. I know you go, man, does God love me? Look at what I did. You go right back here to Romans and you, you realize, hey, he doesn't love me because of anything I've done, but because of what he did. He doesn't love me because I'm lovable, but because he is love. That's what we need to remember. Fight those, those thoughts. And then if you understand how rich God's love is, how unconditional it is, that should cause you to live different and step a little higher through life. Because you're going to mess up. You're not going to be lovable tomorrow. But God still loves you. 
Let me read verses 9 through 10. You see, he, he doesn't love you because you're lovable. If he did, he would stop loving you when you're unlovable. That's what's great about God's love. Let me read verses 9 through 10 here. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we are loved by his death. His blood is his death. Blood represents life. We are justified by his blood. Much more, look at that phrase, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see what I'm talking about? Who are we saved from? God himself. God saves us from God. God saves us from his wrath, suffering his wrath. We are saved by, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, we are loved by his death, much more, look at that phrase again, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, the, the, the theme of these verses is reconciliation. Reconciliation is different than justification. Justification is a legal term. Justification means that I'm a guilty of sin. I'm a rebel against God. I deserve hell. I deserve his wrath. But God justified me. He, even though I'm guilty, he declared me not guilty, not because I was rehabilitated, not because I was innocent, but because Jesus paid my price. So he declared me not guilty. That's my standing before God. Okay? That's what justification means. It's legal. Reconciliation is not legal. It's relational. When he justified me, then I went from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, but even much more a child of God. He adopted me into his family. I am a son. You are a daughter. We're re reconciled, our relationship. And this leads to the next benefit or the next glorious exchange. And this is one of the most glorious of glorious exchanges. And it's the fact that we exchange when we're justified and then we're reconciled because of justification. Now we exchange insecurity for assurance of salvation. We exchange insecurity for security. We are loved by his death and secured by his life. We are loved and we are locked. We're loved by his death and we are secured by his life. And that's uh, it's, this is important because to understand because so many of you, listen, and I think not so many of you, I think, all, I think all Christians at some point struggle with doubt. I think all Christians at some point struggle, can God really love me? Does God really love me? I think all Christians at some point struggle with, with does God, did, did God really save me? Because I know what I did yesterday. I know what I did last week. I, I struggle with my actions and I struggle with me. And did God, I think all Christians struggle. So it's important that you get this. I think it's important you get it because a lot of you come from a, a different background spiritually. Some of the tribes that you come from, I like to call them, believe that you can lose your salvation based on your actions. For example, the Catholics believe you can lose your salvation. The Wesleyans believe you can lose your salvation. The holiness, the Nazarene. If you come from a Nazarene background, the, some Pentecostals believe that your salvation is dependent upon you working, coming along and working uh, with God to make that happen. He saved you. Man, you got to complete it. You gotta, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches here. Notice, he says much more in two verses. He said, if we have been justified by his blood, much more we will be saved by his, from his wrath. 
If we've been reconciled by his life, much more we will be, I mean, I'm sorry, we've been reconciled by his death, much more we'll be saved by his life. Much more. You see, that is a, much more is an argument, a form of argument called greater to lesser. And what that means, if the greater thing is true, then the lesser thing is definitely true. Right? And the point is, if God has done his best, he's going to do the rest. The point is, if God paid the price of his son for your salvation, then he is not going to get you to the end and go, oh, but you, it was all about my son to save you, but you had to keep it. I did it, but now it's up to you to keep it. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are saved by his death, reconciled by his death, you'll be saved in his life. And notice... I used to think when it says you, you've been reconciled by his death and you'll be saved by his life. Notice that's past tense. That's future tense of salvation. Justification happened. You, when you were redeemed, you were redeemed. It's done. That's why it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you've got to get this to understand his love and security. When Jesus saved you, if you're redeemed, the moment he saved you, or if you're not redeemed, if, he, if you surrender to him, the moment you are redeemed, the moment you're justified, here's what happens. God forgives every sin you've ever committed. Not only that, he removes you from bondage to sin. He removes you from the penalty of sin. You still live in the presence of sin, which means you screw up every day, you mess up every day, but you're, you're, you're removed from the penalty of sin, which means this. He forgave every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will ever commit. Now think about how glorious that is, okay? Now if you let that roll over in your mind for a moment, that's amazing, right? To think about, okay, God forgave all my sin, but what about... The sin I'm going to commit tomorrow or five years from now if, I still, if God still allows me to live. Now, I know in general some things I battle with. So I know generally some things I'll probably mess up and ask, ask God forgiveness for. But I don't know all the sins I'm going to commit. But Jesus does. And the moment that he died for me, the moment I surrendered to him, he knew every sin I would commit as I breathe on this planet. And he forgave every one of them at that moment. That's why he could say, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. It's forgiven. Do I confess and repent? Absolutely. Because that sin does not cause me to lose my salvation. It does not cause me to lose my standing before God. But it certainly interferes with my relationship with God. And so I confess it because he's my king. And I surrender to him. And I confess it because I want to please my king. And when I displease him, it hurts me. And it causes me uh, damage in my soul because I've displeased my king. And so I confess it. As a matter of fact, some people say, oh, if you start teaching that, some of the tribes I mentioned earlier, if you start teaching that, then people will just live like hell. They'll do anything they want to because they think, I can be saved and I can live like hell. I would say that person is not saved. Because if you're a believer and you know that God forgave every sin you've ever committed, you're still going to commit sin and it's going to break your heart because that God is a God that you want to please and serve and that you don't want to do anything to harm his glory. And so there's constant confession and repentance. That's the amazing thing about God's love. And that's the amazing thing. If you understand that, then you know how your salvation is secure because he secured it at the cross. You see, he doesn't love you based on what you do because you're lovable. He loves you because he is love. If he loved you because you were lovable, he might not love you tomorrow. 
And he didn't save you based on what you do. He saved you based on what he did. If he saved you based on what you do, then you might not be saved tomorrow. But it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what he did. Because you're too weak. You're too helpless. You're too powerful, powerless to do anything about it. You are an enemy who's hostile to God, who rebelled against God, which makes you a guilty sinner. God loves us even when we're an unlovable punk. Isn't that awesome? God saved us. Man, when we would let us rot, he saved us because of what he did, not because of what we do. So therefore, you can know God loves you. And God, if you're redeemed, you can know that you are loved by his death and secured by his life. I used to think when it said that, that it was talking about Jesus' life on this planet. He, he, he lived a perfect life, and he is our substitute because his life that was lived in perfection was able to satisfy God as the perfect sacrifice. But that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about not his life on this planet, but he says that we are, we are saved, sanctified by his death. We will be saved, the future tense. I'm, I'm saved now, but I'm going to be saved by his, from, from God's wrath because of his life, meaning his resurrection life. Because right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding. As the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews says, daily he intercedes for you. Did you realize Jesus prays and intercedes for you every day to the Father on your behalf? Did you realize that if you're a, if you're a believer? Amazing. It's amazing. And we are partakers in his resurrection life. And so therefore, Jesus, no believer will spend any time in hell because hell is reserved based, you can read Revelation, hell is reserved for those who rebel against God, those who are enemies of God, those who are, uh, uh, those who hate God, and those who are justified by the life of his son, he would never pay that price and then just not complete the deal. It's secure. You are loved by his death. You are secure by his life. You are loved by his death. You are secure by his life. You are loved and you are locked. Some of you are not yet there. Today we want to give you the opportunity to come back to the next steps. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. If you are a believer, then I would challenge you that that ought to just set your life. That ought to mark your life in a way that you're never the same. That you understand God loves me. Even when I screw up and I feel horrible about it and I, and I confess it and I repent, rather than wallowing, I should go, God, you still love me. You are awesome. God, you have forgiven every sin. You are amazing. I want to run hard after your heart. I want to worship you. That ought to cause you as a believer to respond with your life on the altar for Jesus Christ. So today we're going to give you the opportunity to worship or to respond, we're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We're going to respond by, 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 by singing, and as we sing, and you respond however God's led you to, to respond, some of you in prayer, some of you in worship, however you respond, however God leads you, you respond. Travis, is, I'm going to pray, and Travis and our band's going to come, and uh, we're going to then respond, okay? Father, we love you so much. You're amazing. Your love is too rich and deep for us to ever grasp but thank you that you can give us glimpses 
Thank you that, Lord, you are an amazing God. And thank you that your love is not based on us being lovable, but it's based on the fact that you are love. Thank you that our salvation is not secured by what we do, but by what you did. Thank you, Father, that we are loved and we are locked. We are loved by your death and we are secured by your life. And I pray that today you would convict and draw. I know that people today, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, no one uh, would say, I want Jesus. But I, Holy Spirit, I know that you convict. And I pray that today you would convict people. Draw people to the Father. Save people today. I pray that Christians would begin to understand the benefits that we have. Not just heaven, as glorious as that is, but we have peace with you. We have unlimited access with you. Our trials are not defeating. Our trials can be bring joy. God, we are loved unconditionally by you. We are secure in our salvation. God, the benefits that we have and how that can set our mind and change our actions. And Lord, from the inside out, transform how we think, live, breathe, talk. God, help us to live in a way that honors you every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.